Hello, just a quick note before we start this month's podcast. There is an article to go along with this podcast, which we reference to quite heavily uh, in the in the podcast. Um, but at the time of releasing, it's not yet ready. Now, we don't normally like releasing podcasts without uh, without the accompanying article because we think it's important that you can go away, you can look at what we've said in a written format and look at the sources and things that we've referenced and critique us and make your own judgments about what we're saying. Uh, but we've taken the decision to release the podcast on its own this month because, uh, as you may have noticed, if you're a subscriber, that it's coming into your podcatcher a little bit late on in the month. And if we waited for the article to be ready, um, it would just be too much of a delay. So we're releasing the podcast uh, a little bit before the article is ready. The reason the article is going to be delayed is because we're moving our web host or we're in the process of moving our web host. So we're very aware that most of our listeners access the podcasts and read the articles from a mobile device. We're also aware that our current web host is not particularly optimized for mobiles and tablets. So we're in the process of fixing that. We're going to be moving to a nice shiny new website that should be streamlined and easy to read across all devices. But uh, that's the reason for the delay. So if you're if you're listening to this podcast, in the first month or so uh, after it's after it going live then there isn't an article but uh, if you keep checking the website once we've migrated across to our new format there will be the article there as normal so hopefully you enjoy the episode thanks every year in england and wales 1.4 million people attend a and e with a head injury this makes up just over 6.5% of the presentations that emergency departments will see, with 20% of them being admitted. Ultimately, 90% of people end up being diagnosed with a minor head injury and are discharged. However, making that decision can sometimes be tricky. Ambulance staff often have a difficult time managing head injuries. We're without the luxury of imaging equipment and often lacking the option to take a watch and wait approach with patients. We often have to make a decision of what to do with patients based on a 20 to 30 minute assessment in environments and situations that are not always conducive to medical assessment. This week, we're tackling the assessment of head injuries. We'll go through some red flags to be aware of, as well as how to appropriately safety net and discharge our patients. So let's get started. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. General Broadcast is a free online learning resource aimed at UK-based student paramedics and newly qualified paramedics. We hope the podcast will provide a useful directory integrating care-based practice examples with the accompanying theory. My name's Josh, I'm a trainee specialist paramedic in critical care. And my name's Simon, I'm a trainee advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. So this week, Simon, we're talking about adult head injuries. And it's important to specify adult head injuries because assessment with children and our tolerance for symptoms that they present with is marginally different. So I'm sure we'll bring out a podcast about managing and assessing paediatric head injuries in, in the very near future, uh, as they make up somewhere between 30 and 50% of, of all head injuries that present to A&E, depending on which statistics you look at. But this week, it's all about adults. So let's get started with the history taking. We'll start off most history takes by asking them about the mechanism of injury that was involved with sustaining the head injury. So what sort of things might we look at, Simon? So with this, um, we're obviously now talking about patients that we think might have a minor head injury. So obviously we're taking our time. We're not talking about our really unwell, obvious trauma patients, where obviously we're just going to crack on with a, an A to E uh, trauma assessment and manage them that way. But for those patients we think might have a minor head injury, we just need to establish a little bit more information. So with regards to the mechanism of injury, I'd want to know how they sustained the head injury and whether they fell from a height so anything that over a meter or sort of five stairs might concern us whether they had a high speed uh, motor vehicle collision so such as a pedestrian a cyclist um, or a vehicle occupant that wasn't restrained any sort of bullseye injury any rollover motor accident or uh, being ejected from a motor vehicle anything that involves diving so sort of diving onto a onto a head and hitting the bottom of the head on a swimming pool or on in the sea would all be quite concerning and then likely that would trigger us to look more into our big traumas as opposed to our minor head injuries but it's still worth screening just to make sure that none of those are present 
Yeah, definitely, because not only does that potentially indicate that they might have a more sinister head injury or a more sinister brain injury, but also all of those mechanisms are associated with the risk of spinal fractures and unstable spinal fractures so a lot of people will be familiar with those mechanisms coming out of the canadian c-spine rules as as defined high mechanism it's worth saying that mechanism of injury is a really poor predictor of severity of injury and patterns of injury but nonetheless that they are all considered to to be quite highly associated with unstable neck fractures and as a result, we often can't exclude those using our clinical rule-out tools. But we're not going to talk about C-spine injury today, are we, Josh? Because you don't want me to get on my soapbox. No, that's definitely a topic for uh, another podcast, probably a two-part. Is that when the listeners have got two hours to listen to me whine about spinal immobilisation? Yeah, I'll let you rabbit for two hours and then I'll just uh, undertake the painstaking <laughs> process of editing you down. Oh, that'll be fun for you. Do you want to go on to recalling the event? So this is another example of where we need to ask the patient first what happened as opposed to asking any bystanders. So we do want the bystander's opinion, but not necessarily immediately. So we need to ask the patient about what they recall from the event. So what led up to the event and what what happened afterwards. So the main question here is, did they have any loss of consciousness? Josh, do you want to talk about the differences between being knocked out and a loss of consciousness and just being stunned? Yeah, sure. So I think this is only uh, a small point, but I think it's an important distinction to make the difference between being truly knocked out and just being stunned. And without labouring the point too much, you can see this quite a lot in in, in boxing. Um, And if you watch technical knockouts or knockdowns versus true KOs or true knockouts, you can really see a difference in the way that the boxer has fallen to the ground you know when they're when uh, they're stunned often you can see that they retain uh, an element of consciousness they're looking around um, they retain some tone and very rapidly get up whereas in a true knockout they lose that tone often you'll see that you know arms come down by their sides and they hit the ground and they're down for a you know a reasonable amount of time in a, in a knockout it's not down and they're straight back up typically and i think that's an important distinction to make in our history taking because on the face of it the reason that we're so concerned about being knocked out is because that is indicative of some form of brain injury perhaps some kind of concussion or something more serious um, but but that is indicative that this isn't just a simple head injury whereas if someone is simply knocked to the ground, then that isn't as, as clear-cut. Uh, and so that's a, an important distinction for us to make in our history, if possible, because quite a lot of bystanders will say, oh, mate, he was knocked out, when actually they were just knocked to the ground. So I think that's important for us to bear in mind and try and distinguish and elucidate if we can. But of course, if we can't, then it's and and we're being told that the patient's been knocked out, then that's probably the most safest thing to assume and and go from there. The other thing we need to make sure of is that the loss of consciousness, and this can be really difficult, was caused by a potential head injury and not due to a medical collapse. Obviously, our previous podcast was on syncope and on collapse, so it might be worth going back and checking that out. But obviously, there are medical conditions that can cause us to pass out or to have seizures and then people go down and it's it's trying to establish did the loss of consciousness cause them to fall and hit their head or did they fall and hit their head and then have a loss of consciousness so can't always be established but I think it's really important that we try to differentiate between those two if possible because it might mean different workups and and different um, things that are needed to be done just going to give an example from my very junior days as a newly qualified paramedic I think I was about a month and a half post registration and I went to a floppy child in the arms of a a parent who shouted at me that they'd hit their head they'd hit their head and they'd had a fit and that's how the 909 call had come through so I radioed up and had I think half of the resources in the county I was working coming to me including HEMS and critical care backup and basics doctors and duty officers and all sorts of people running only then to go in and establish that this child had been febrile unwell for the last few days had had a febrile convulsion 
and rolled back onto the carpet and bumped their head gently on this really, really soft carpet. And actually, the cause of the collapse was the febrile seizure and was nothing to do with the head. And the child made a good full recovery, was still conveyed to hospital, but with no head injury at all. So uh, I looked a little bit sheepish on that day when I then had to call everyone back and stand them all down. Um, so it's just worth trying to establish, you know, what uh, the events uh, that have led up. So if we are considering that the patient was knocked out and had a true loss of consciousness, then we need to ask some questions about what any bystanders saw during that loss of consciousness. How did they go down? How did they hit their head? What did they hit their head on? How long were they unconscious for? And did they notice any sort of seizure activity that, that might be concerning during that episode of loss of consciousness? So that's questioning about the mechanism of injury, whether they can recall the event, events leading up to the event that they hit their head. We then need to ask some questions how they've been since the event. So Simon's already mentioned if they were unconscious, how long were they unconscious for? Was there any um, uh, any kind of seizure activity or facial fasciculations that we might be concerned about? If we can garner that information from somebody who has uh, has witnessed the event that would be really useful and then we need to ask how they've been since since coming around or since the head injury so we need to be very specific to ask about nausea and vomiting nausea is something that we are less concerned by that's a very subjective symptom and and lots of people may feel a little bit sick after their head injury we would normally expect that to to pass within the coming minutes so with vomiting this is one of the aspects and, and one of the reasons that we're specifying that this is adult head injuries because there is a slight difference in what the NICE guidance recommends with regards to vomiting. So correct me if I'm wrong, Simon, but I think the, the pre-hospital NICE guidance says one vomit and and uh, in adults, and we should convey these patients to, to hospital for, for monitoring and probably further workup. And that's because vomiting as a response to a head injury is, is a bit more significant and a bit more concerning in adults than it is in children. Typically with children, no matter what's wrong with them, they, they can end up vomiting and often it's a result of uh, them getting so worked up and crying that they you know take on a lot of air and, and end up making themselves sick that way. And so with children, they can be allowed anywhere up to about three separate vomiting episodes before we start to get you know relatively concerned. But with adults, one vomit, a nice guidance would suggest going to hospital for further work and further examination. That doesn't mean they're going to get a scan. I think one vomit, they're probably not going to get a CT head. But if there's multiple vomiting episodes, that, that is probably, uh, that patient is then probably a candidate for uh, a CT head. So I, I would say that any vomiting in an adult should concern us. So yeah, one episode in an adult. Uh, in a children, the NICE guidelines say sort of up to three vomits can be normal. I personally would, would say on the third vomiting it, we are talking separate vomiting episodes now so there's a stop and then a restart again yeah. not just three wretches so i would say on the on the third episode of vomiting i would probably be concerned about a child with a head injury i would probably be conveying that to hospital and looking more into that but yeah i think in an adult any vomiting at all should be considered abnormal so moving on from vomiting, we need to look at headache. Now, a mild headache uh, isn't overly concerning, especially if it's localised to where the bump to the head was. However, any really severe or progressive headache or headache that doesn't respond to simple painkillers such as paracetamol should be considered a red flag. So any really bad headaches, we should be reconveying to hospital. But a mild headache post-head injury can be normal uh, as long as it doesn't get worse. Neck pain, obviously, we need to consider a cervical spine injury. We're not going to talk too much about this, but obviously any patient who has had head trauma can cause a cervical spine injury, so they do need to be assessed and excluded before we discharge any potential head injury. If needed, then obviously we need to look at how to manage a, a potential spine injury, but that's a different topic. Although we're definitely not going to do the topic justice in, in this podcast, I think it's probably worth mentioning off the back of that. We've obviously risk stratified patients for neck injury by asking about the mechanism of injury and we'll work through the nexus or Canadian C-spine rules or whatever set of exclusion criteria our trust feels is most useful to use for their, for their spinal injury guidelines. Um, but I think it is worth bringing up the point that they are exclusion criteria for 
clinically unstable neck fractures and that is not the same as saying this patient doesn't have a neck injury or doesn't potentially have a bony neck injury so they could still have a spinous process fracture they could have a laminar fracture to the vertebrae so we still need to do a good workup of the neck and the back when we come to our physical exam as well as asking about emotion and and pain and discomfort and yeah although we're not talking about significant head injuries it's also worth noting that we know that cervical collars do increase intracranial pressure we do also know that they affect movement and we do also know that they can make oxygenation and airway management quite difficult so it is sometimes worth considering whether a cervical collar in a significant head injury is beneficial to the patient obviously we want to prevent secondary injury to to the brain if we're dealing with a severe head injury so oxygenation ventilation and not increasing pressure further are really significant so again different topic but it's, it's worth looking at the evidence and literature around that i think that's really important that we just consider that that you know how we manage a neck injury may not be that beneficial to the head injury and we should just have a balance right that's it we're not talking about necks anymore this is a head injury podcast so no more neck talk simon agreed so something else that we need to be sure to ask about is what their gcs was at the time of the event and and how has it been since so i'm pretty sure that everybody listening to this podcast will appreciate that anything but a GCS 15 in uh, in the case of head injury is a red flag but we also need to ask how the patient or how, how the patient's level of consciousness has been since the event because they might be GCS 15 now but it, it's possible that they could have had a waxing waning GCS uh, or it's possible that the head injury could have been some time ago and the reason that we've been called is because they've been unrousable since since the event so we need to be asking about that we need to document that quite clearly intermittent lucid intervals or fluctuating GCS particularly in the elderly is highly associated with extradural hemorrhages and they may not have required a loss of consciousness at the time. So uh, then we need to ask our patients about their past medical history. So Simon, what kind of things are we looking for in the past medical history and what relevance is there? So the first thing we want to know in the past medical history is from people that know the patient well, their normal response level. So obviously it's going to slightly complicate our assessment with patients with dementia, uh, cognitive impairment or patients with learning disability who may not be... Um, GCS of 15 normally. So what we need to make sure is that whenever we score a GCS, we score it accurate to the patient and we establish what the patient's normal baseline GCS would be. But we'll come on a little bit more to GCS scoring later on. So with regards to other medical history, we want to know whether this patient's had any recent alcohol or drug intake because we need to establish whether the reduced level of consciousness could be attributed to another cause. Now, I think it's really important safety point here to note that if a patient does have a head injury and they are intoxicated or on any substances, you should never, ever assume that it is those substances related and not the head injury. Always treat the head injury and the patient should be conveyed to hospital. It surprises me, but this is still seen by a number of SIs per year in ambulance services where someone just assumes that uh, it's alcohol causing a patient's symptoms when actually they have had an injury to the head. So a really good take-home message there is never assume that the acute alcohol is a cause of reduced level of consciousness when there is the presence of a head injury or possibility of a head injury. I think that's a really good point, Simon, because we're we're really at risk of doing that, especially, you know, you can imagine it, can't you, on those busy Friday and Saturday nights when you've spent the majority of your time in town picking students up off the floor and and dealing with intoxication as the primary problem. It's really, really easy to anchor to intoxication as a problem and to to treat your patient who's intoxicated with a head injury in the similar vein as those that are just drunk so i think that's really a really important point to be aware of and something that we need to have in the back of our mind for those friday and saturday night shifts we uh we need to to treat each patient as they come really. definitely something that will will catch you out in in in, in your career if you if you don't consider this really be aware of your own biases when it comes to dealing with intoxicated patients personally 
alcohol and uh, chronic alcohol and and acute intoxication are massive red flags for me to look into things a bit more and i think a lot of people have nearly been unstuck by them so really make sure that uh, you know you're happy with your assessment and if you're not sure then refer on so that's talking a bit more about acute alcohol now we need to talk about more chronic alcohol intake and how this affects head injury so chronic alcoholics like the elderly are more prone to subdural bleeds in the head because alcoholism can cause uh, cerebral atrophy which effectively makes the brain shrink and that leaves more room for bleeding and therefore anyone who has a long-standing history of alcoholism with a head injury is a high risk for delayed bleeds. Secondly patients who are chronic alcoholics are likely to have a degree of liver pathology. We know that the liver is heavily involved in creating our blood clotting factors and therefore someone who is chronic alcoholic whose liver isn't functioning as well as it should be may not clot as well as uh, a, a normal person and therefore there are once again at increased risk of bleeding. And I'm sure you're going to include in the article exactly which part of the clotting cascades and, and how problems with the liver affect fibrinogen aren't you Simon? If you'd like me to of course I will Josh. <laughs> <laughs> So what about patients that are on anticoagulants? Anticoagulants are mentioned in the NICE guidelines. So they've recently had an update because previously uh, it was just warfarin was mentioned in the sort of DOAX or NOAX, so new oral anticoagulants or direct oral anticoagulants, depending on what you read, weren't mentioned. However, in 2019, they were updated and now they are anticoagulant is mentioned as a general term. And I think it's really important because even before it was changed, every ED I went to would still scan any anticoagulated patient. The interesting ones are not the not the anticoagulants so much, but the antiplatelets. So we know that anyone on an anticoagulant should be conveyed to hospital with any head injury because they're going to need a CT head. But what about antiplatelets? What's your thought on clopidogrel, for example, Josh, before I go into it a bit more? Uh, not contentious at all. Um, so I think it is dependent on who you get receiving your patient, isn't it? Depending on whether or not they get a scan or not. I think some of our in-hospital colleagues would elect to scan them because they are more prone to bleeding. But I think there's probably other people that would say, well, it's not in the NICE guidance that they need a scan. So why did you bring them in? Absolutely. And that's uh, what I hear from a lot of people that um, they they come in and they say, I've brought this patient in because they've got a head injury and they're on clopidogrel. And I've I've heard everyone say that, you know, nurses in charge turn around and go, yes, but clopidogrel isn't an anticoagulant, it's an antiplatelet. So therefore, they don't need a scan. So this is a big area of contention. And something I found really interesting. So I actually did it as my master's dissertation. And I did a literature review which looked at whether clopidogrel does increase the risk of bleeding significantly in head trauma. And also tried to compare that to uh, warfarin and other anticoagulants. Unfortunately, some of the studies have limitations in them. You can't always pull them out for any external validity. However, there was enough evidence there that concerned me quite a lot. So my current practice in ED is that I will CT just as I would with an anticoagulant, anyone who's also on clopidogrel or a second generation antiplatelet medication. So things like ticagrelor. But the evidence for things like aspirin was reassuring that uh, actually the increased risk is is not, not as significant. So anything like clopidogrel, ticagrelor, I will scan aspirin I will monitor just like a normal head injury. Again, evidence is weak. I'm very willing to change my opinion on that. Either way, I would like to see some more evidence, but I do think that needs to be done as a trial. And at the moment, the, the evidence has swung me enough that I'm I'm concerned. But I would be very interested to see some actual high-quality research on that subject. So the trust that both you and I used to work for when we were frontline 999 had it stipulated in their clinical guideline that clopidogrel was something that they would advocate going to hospital for and various people listening to this may have different guidance from their trust but just so we're clear because it's all very 
easy for you now being in your nice warm emergency department to just say well (laughs) the patient's here let's put them through the scanner bearing in mind that some of the people listening to this may be making the decision whether to take this patient 30 40 minutes maybe even an hour um, to hospital are you saying if you were in their position pre-hospitally and you've gone to a patient with a with a head injury that's on clopidogrel you would take them to hospital so uh, i'm going to refer to the ever supportive jail calc guidelines on this josh and it says patients undergoing antiplatelet therapy do not automatically require assessment in hospital have a lower threshold for conveyance of patients on dual antiplatelets and refer to local procedures. Common antiplatelets include aspirin, clopidogrel and tacagrelor. So I find that uh, exceptionally helpful. Um, it doesn't really say, say either I th- way. <laughs> I think that's the, the only time you've ever called JR Calc an exceptionally helpful document when it's helping you weasel out of this difficult question. Um, so, no, I need to stand by my clinical decision making and give you a proper answer. So at present with my practice, yes, any patient who is on dual therapy or is on a second generation antiplatelet, as I said earlier, clopidogrel, tacagrelor, um will uh, be conveyed to hospital my current practice as i said i'm very willing to be wrong i'm very willing to be challenged upon that but until i see evidence to the contrary that's my that's my line on the subject but obviously everyone can make their own clinical decision as they see fit okay so we've talked about medications that might affect clotting but what about bleeding and clotting disorders, Simon? Yeah, so I think these are a given, really. Um, if we're going to convey people who are anticoagulated, anyone who has a history of a bleeding or clotting disorder also has the same increased risk of worsening bleeding and head injury. So they should be conveyed, mentioned in the NICE guidelines. And then the other thing we want to ask about is previous neurosurgical interventions. So basically anyone who's had a previous traumatic brain injury or previous need to have neurosurgery, they should also be conveyed just because of the risk of complications. Moving on then to physical exam, the most obvious thing that we're going to want to investigate is for the signs of visible trauma to the scalp. We're we're going to look to see if it's a simple hematoma, if they've actually broken the skin, and if that is the case, we need to assess the depth, whether or not there's underlying structures or skull visible and whether or not that wound is going to need management or or treating which i'm sure most people will be quite familiar with it can be quite difficult if that disappears off into the hairline and so we may need to take a little bit of time to to assess that and obviously anything any wounds within the facial triangle so where the skin has actually been broken within the facial triangle may require specialist closure to prevent scarring The other aspect of our physical exam is assessing for signs of a base of skull fracture. So typically, these are going to be really nasty and the the signs I'm about to talk about aren't going to be the things that make us worry that something is wrong. It's going to be very, very rare that we're doing an assessment like this and find concerning injury patterns that make us think this patient might have a base of skull fracture. These are typically going to be high energy impacts with unwell patients. But nonetheless, we need to investigate and if they're not present, document pertinent negatives for uh, any kind of extra date from the ears or nose. And specifically what we're looking for is clear straw-like fluid, uh, which is cerebral spinal fluid. If the if the closed box of the skull has been broken and there's been some penetration into the sinuses or the, the ear canal, uh, we may get that leaking out of there. If there's signs of blood that's mixed in with it, um, something you can do is take a piece of gauze and just dab it very quickly onto the gauze. And what you may end up with is is what's called the, the halo appearance or the halo sign where you have the blood in the center and then the clearer cerebrospinal fluid around the outside forming a, a golden ring or a golden halo around the blood. And that might be a way that might be a way for you to distinguish whether or not there's any CSF mixed in with that. Something else we'd be looking for is periorbital hematomas or periorbital ecchymosis, so uh, often called panderize, um, or battle signs. So this is bleeding behind the ears 
and that's sustained from blood being contained behind the eardrum and this is often associated with changes in hearing the deafness in both ears or or in just one ear both of these signs are associated quite highly with basal skull fractures so there's some granted quite weak evidence but it's quite a, a hard thing to to come across that found positive predictive values of 100% for battle signs and 90% for panda eyes so uh, they're, they're quite highly suggestive of a base of skull fracture being present but uh, I just think it's really important to echo that these are going to be a late signs and b not the first things that we're going to notice to suggest that this patient's unwell or this patient might have a base of skull fracture. So next we should be assessing the neck. Again, we've we've promised that we weren't going to talk about the neck, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But obviously, uh, head injuries can be highly associated with particularly cervical spinal injuries. So we need to ensure that we're doing a full assessment, checking range of motion in the neck, and that we're happy that there's no underlying neck injury. And again, I just want to echo that just because they're clear on the Canadian C-spine rules or the Nexus rules doesn't mean that they may not have a neck injury, they may not have a spine injury. It just means that using those rules, we can say with a pretty high level of of assurance that there's no significant unstable neck fracture. The Canadian C-spine rule talks about clinically significant spinal cord injury. So like you were speaking about earlier, Josh, it doesn't mean that there isn't a fracture. It just means that it's not going to be clinically significant in terms of uh, further injury to the spinal cord. But we said we're not talking about necks, Simon. So we're definitely not going to mention necks ever again let's go on to neurological exams so what are we going to cover in our neurological exam Simon? so the neurological exam we need to start with a gross overview of gcs so gcs is one of those things that most people is is routine practice to document 15 or to document three but anything in between i would say a lot of people sometimes don't document that accurately there's a really good video online rather than us talk about exactly how to assess a gcs there's a really good video online which we will put the a link to in the show notes you can go to it's got a really good video from the founder and co-creator of the gcs himself who talks about how to assess it accurately and i think it's a really good video to uh, follow to to make sure you're doing GCSs properly. What about those patients who aren't normally GCS 15, Simon? So I'm thinking of of those patients with quite profound learning difficulties or particularly um, commonly encountered those patients that have reasonably developed dementia. So they're probably not oriented to time, person and place. Uh, We'd normally dock a, uh, a point on verbal for them, making them a GCS 14, but that's what they're normally like. So this is a really good point to raise, and this is what I see a lot of people, both the paramedic profession and nursing profession, not document accurately. So when we're documenting a GCS, we should record that person's exact GCS and then decide whether that GCS is normal for them. Just to explain that a little bit simpler, if we take the the case study of a, a patient with dementia who lives in a care home, now if we were to take a point off their verbal score because they are normally confused with their dementia so they're not alert and orientated to time place and date but this is normal for them okay and they're not more confused than they are normally when we assess them for a head injury we should try to do our workup as we would for any patient uh, as best we can with their engagement but when we document their gcs what i do see some people doing is going well their confusion is normal for them So therefore, we give them a score of a GCS of 15. And that's not right. What we should be doing is saying their GCS is 14 because we've lost a point for confusion. But that level of confusion is normal for them. And I've confirmed that with the nursing staff, the care staff, the friends, the family. And that their GCS is normally 14. Therefore, I'm happy with a GCS of 14. And that goes the same for any GCS. If someone is you know, is more confused and and doesn't talk, it it might be an even lower GCS. But it's about what's normal for them. So don't document a GCS of 15 in a patient who is never a GCS of 15. Document that it's a reduced GCS, but that GCS is normal for them. It's an objective observation, isn't it? You wouldn't take a patient with essential hypertension who's sitting at 150 over 90 and go, well, 
that's normal for them. So we'll do 120 over 80 on the PCR. It's it's an objective measurement. We just need to put that into perspective. Yeah, and that, that's a, a great way of putting it. Another example would be a, a patient who's overweight that might have a respiratory rate normally of 20, 21. You know, we're not going to change that to a respiratory rate of 14 just because that's normal. And I think that's a great way of putting it, Josh. Moving further on in the neurological exam, I think most people will be familiar with checking pupils. And that's definitely something we should do. We should be checking that they are equal, round, reactive and concentric. And what most people are familiar with looking for is a blown pupil, because that's what a lot of paramedics are taught in university can happen with severe head injuries. And whilst that is true, it's really important to put that into perspective again. So the reason that a pupil will be blown is because for whatever reason, there is pressure that is building and compressing the ocular motor nerve, which is responsible for the dilatation and constriction of the pupils. We need to remember that this is going to be a really, really late sign. And again, a blown pupil is not going to be the first thing that alludes to us that this is a really unwell patient with a head injury. And I would even go as far to say that if we have a patient that is GCS 15, even GCS 14 probably, and they have one pupil that is bigger than the other, that is not clinically related to the head injury and we need to consider other causes. So it might be that they've got an injury to the eye and it is a intraocular pathology that is pressing the optic nerve, giving that dilated pupil. It could be the fact that they've got a glass eye and clearly their pupil is not going to dilate then. Or more than likely, this patient may just have what's called a physical anisocoria. So where normally the pupil on the left or the pupil on the right may be much bigger than, than the other pupil. And they may or may not be aware of this. So it's important that we check the pupils and that we document them accurately so that they can be compared later on down the line. But there is a lot more to pupil assessment than simply, oh, they've got a blown pupil on one side. It must be a bad head injury. I think that's one of the things that is considerably sort of misrepresented in paramedic training. Yeah, I agree completely. If someone is GCS of 15, happily chatting to you with a minor laceration to their forehead after they clip their head on the side of a kitchen overtop, then pupil abnormality is very, very unlikely going to be related to a brain injury and much more likely to be a localised pathology to the eye. So that's something that probably every paramedic in the UK will check in all of their head injuries, but something people may be less familiar with doing is doing a full cranial nerve neurological exam. Should we be doing these on every head injury patient? Yes, I, I think it's essential to do a full cranial nerve exam on every patient. By full, I don't mean, you know, to the same standard as a neurologist, because those can take absolute hours to do. You know, I'm not saying we need to be carrying around smelling salts and smelling kits to fully test, you know, the first cranial nerve and sense of smell. But I do think that a gross emergency assessment overviewing the cranial nerves is essential, especially if we're going to be discharging a patient with a head injury at home. I completely agree. And the NICE guidance agrees as well. So all of these patients should have a gross cranial nerve exam. We're not going to be able to squeeze that into a podcast. But if people want to revise their cranial nerves, or in fact, there's people that aren't familiar with their cranial nerves... We'll put a really good video online with the article and I would just suggest that if this is something that people aren't familiar with, they look at doing some patient assessment courses. Quite a lot of the patient assessment clinical reasoning courses will will cover them. And they're, as I say, they're absolutely vital to safely discharging head injuries. And I just tag on the end of that as well, a, a rough upper and lower motor neurological examination, just looking at motor and movement power looking at tone and coordination and sensation just grossly just to make sure there's no sort of neurology that we're picking up on and by doing the full cranial nerve and upper and lower neuro exam we're going to be picking up on our focal neurological deficits any problems with vision with speech disturbance understanding speech reading or writing any problems with balance or walking any loss of muscle power or sensory changes such as paresthesia in the upper or lower limbs. And if you're trained to do it, then obviously reflexes will help that as well. Although in a well patient who is GCS of 15 with no other problems on a neurological exam, it's questionable whether you would need to do reflexes. But obviously if it's something you're trained to do, it just completes the examination nicely. 
it's also worth saying whilst we're on assessment that there, there might be other things that we want to do. We might want to investigate other systems. We might need to do a cardiovascular assessment. We might need to do an abdominal assessment, depending on what the individual history was surrounding the incident. But for all head injuries, even the, the little bumps on the head that we're getting called to, we need to be doing that full neurological assessment and taking those full histories, as we've discussed above, looking for red flags as as a sort of standard. And although we've kind of talked about red flags as we've gone through, so we've, you know, we've discussed the things to look for in the patient history, those patients that are on blood thinners, those patients who have bleeding or clotting disorders, <clears throat> any history of being knocked out or vomiting profusely or or any seizures since the incident. We've kind of covered a lot of the the red flags, but what we'll do in the article online is we'll put a, a, a big list of, of red flags to look out for uh, and there's loads of other documents the nice guidance is, is pretty clear on some things to look out for and there's loads of, of charts and tables of red flags in in most primary care and urgent care assessment textbooks i think the final point of the nice guidelines worth mentioning is in the red flag section and what should be referred to hospital is if there's any continuing concern by the professional about the diagnosis so i think this is a nice little caveat they've added in there just to make sure that if you're still not happy despite having everything else that's normal if there's still something that's bothering you about the patient then get them seen by someone else just to make sure yeah absolutely and that doesn't always mean taking them to hospital does it that could mean uh, making a same day gp appointment asking district nurses or community nurses to pop in or even if you're on a car and it's something that could be done in your service popping back to see them later on in the shift i know when i've worked on some community paramedic cars in the past i've definitely set that up before where i've said look i'll give you a call on our work phone on our recorded line later on to make sure everything's still okay and in the cases that it wasn't i've paged control up and asked them to put it through as an urgent job or a running call just so i can pop back and and see them and, and reassess the patient and i think that's you know that's grown-up medicine that's that's part of keeping people out of hospital and that's part of having a safety net in place that sometimes you need to activate it yeah i think there's a lot of stuff that people in the ambulance service go oh you can't do that you can't do that and actually there's nothing that says that you can't do that if your practice is safe and you are doing something in the genuine interest of a patient especially in this case doing it on a recorded line as a good safety net just as a bit of a follow-up I think it's really good to, to, to make sure that, that you're doing what's best for patients. As a specialist paramedic, when I was on the road, I would see patients for out of hours or for, for 909. And I would then quite regularly tell control, I'm going to call this patient later, just before my next meal break or my second meal break. And I'm just going to review them over the phone. And I'll speak to them over the phone. And if I'm not happy, then I'll tell control I'm going back to see them. And we need to remember that we're the clinicians. And, you know, it's not something we're going to do every day, but there are times when it's necessary that we need to review our decisions. And a lot of the time, patients feel really valued. They really like it because you're calling them done on, a, on hopefully on a recorded line. So that there's, it's, um, it's well documented. And then sometimes I just keep my patient clinical records open in the background on my PCR and then reopen it and just add some more notes on the bottom or even create a new one and just say telephone call back to a patient checking up da, 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 how are they feeling and you know that they're still fine and i've reconfirmed safety netting advice which we're about to talk about next and everything's still fine and i think that shows real good care um, and something that is an option that we can do that's kind of led us on quite nicely to safety netting so assume we've had uh, a reassuring examination there's no red flags that we've been able to identify uh, and we think this is a minor head injury and a candidate for for being discharged how should we discharge these patients? How should we safety net them? And what kind of advice do we need to give our patients? So this is where I bring up about proper safety netting. A lot of people seem to consider safety netting to be call 999 if any problems. That's just not significant enough. And what we really need to get used to is safety netting properly. And head injuries is a good case to, to start looking at how we safety net properly. So Neighbours Model of Consultation is a really good guide on this. So they talk about safety netting as having three parts. The first part being what I think is wrong with the patient, and I've explained it to them, and what I would expect to happen. 
So this is what you would see the course of their illness or their injury and how that should continue on and how that it should heal or get better if you're discharging them. Next, it should be what happens if I'm either wrong or what happens if that condition gets worse. So therefore, we give them specific worsening advice to look out for. And the third part is what do they need to do about that when they get that or if any of that nasty stuff happens. So a patient needs to know what you think is going to happen and why, what they need to look out for and what they need to do if any of that happens. And that is adequate safety netting. So in terms of head injury, the NICE guidelines have got a really good written discharge vice leaflet. And I actually use this in my practice as my standard head injury advice. So I print this out and I give it to patients. So I really think that printed and written worsening advice is really useful especially when you're dealing with head injuries because the list is quite extensive we are going to reassure the patient that we think they've got a minor head injury and we would expect them to get better over the next couple of weeks we're going to tell them about the things that they might experience that they shouldn't really worry about so these might be a mild headache so by mild we need to explain that so it means a very mild headache that goes away with paracetamol Uh, and isn't severe because we would be worried about a really severe headache or anything that isn't being resolved by simple analgesia. Feeling sick can be normal but we don't want them vomiting. Any mild dizziness or mild irritability but we need to explain the difference between irritability and agitation or behavioural change. Some problems may be concentrating, maybe a little bit of memory problems and some tiredness can all be normal post head injury But if they don't go away within two weeks, they should probably speak to their own GP. We should be advising them that they should stay home and they need to be with someone for the first 24 hours after having a head injury. And this is really important. If you cannot safety net a patient adequately with someone to be with them for the first 24 hours, then you really need to consider whether that person should be admitted to hospital. They need to stay within easy reach of a telephone so they can seek medical help and they need to avoid any stressful or highly energetic situations, especially contact sports. So if a patient does play contact sports, they probably should have a return to sport assessment either done by their GP or a qualified professional before they return to contact sports. They should avoid alcohol, drugs, anything that's sedative in nature or anything that might make them worse unless they're told to by a doctor. They should also refrain from doing any driving or operating machinery until they feel that they've completely recovered. So those are the things that we would expect to be normal. So we talk to the patient about those. Next is what happens if if this head injury is getting worse or they later on to develop a bleed that on initial presentation wasn't present. So this is where we give our worsening advice information. So again, this should be in written format. So we would be looking for, is there any unconsciousness or lack of full consciousness? So for example, problems keeping their eyes open. Any inappropriate drowsiness last longer than say an hour when they should be awake. If they're struggling to be woken, that's not normal. If they have any problems understanding or speaking, any problems with their balance or walking, any weakness in any of their limbs, any problems with eyesight or visual disturbance, any painful headache that won't go away, any vomiting, any seizure, convulsion or fit. And again, use multiple terms so the patient understands. We might understand what those mean, but patients can use them interchangeably. Any clear fluid or blood that comes out of the ears uh, or nose and any irritable or confused Uh, agitated behavior that doesn't resolve and I would advise any of those patients with any of those symptoms developed to either return to an A&E department or to recall 999. So that covers all of our safety netting so they know they need to go back to A&E or call 999 if any of those symptoms develop and they also know what they should expect but that's a lot of information so that's why I highly advise that it's given in writing both to the patient and to the person who will be looking after them for the next 24 hours. Yeah, that's a really good summary, Simon. And most trusts provide head injury advice leaflets. 
And so it would be absolutely fine to leave one of those with a patient. And certainly in my practice, uh, I would sit down and go through the document with them and, and with their next of kin or whoever's staying with them. So you can certainly use that or, or if there isn't one of those to hand or your trust doesn't produce them, you can certainly find this document given by NICE, which is a patient information leaflet. And we will link to that in the article. Let's summarise then. Head injuries are a really common condition that paramedics are highly likely to encounter. Statistically, this is likely to be a minor head injury, but we need to ensure that every patient gets a really good workup and a really comprehensive assessment from us so that we don't let any of those more significant head injuries fall through the net. We need to be taking a really good history, asking about events leading up to the event, how they sustained the injury, if they were knocked out, and what happened after the event, what they can remember, whether there were any concerning symptoms witnessed by either the patient or by someone that was with them. We need to be asking about past medical history and medication to investigate whether or not there's any of those complicating factors that we talked about earlier. We need to be doing a thorough assessment and a really good neurological workout looking for any of the red flags and we need to be giving rigorous safety netting advice if we're discharging these patients given not only to the patient but also to their next of kin it's not good enough to say if you deteriorate just call us back we need to be telling them what's wrong what we expect to happen and how long we think it should take them to get better we need to give them signs to look out for if our impression is wrong including the red flags and the worsening symptoms and we need to tell them what to do if they notice any of these signs and when to call us back ideally we don't want these patients to be left alone for 24 hours so we need to ensure that there's somebody with them who can call us back if the patient can't do it themselves so hopefully that was a useful summary for you on the assessment and management of adult head injuries. As always, there's going to be a fully written article on our website, generalbroadcast.org.uk, where you can find all of the references and materials that we've used to come up with this podcast. You can also find links to the NICE guidelines, the patient information leaflets that we were talking about earlier, as well as a simple list of red flags that we need to be aware of and looking out for. If you've got any comments or questions on the article or podcast, please email us at generalbroadcastpodcast at outlook.com. Don't forget to subscribe to us for the latest episodes. But that's all for now. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. And join us next time.